up, everyone? Welcome back to the show. Hope you're all doing great. My guest today is Stefan Levera. So if you're a hardcore Bitcoiner, Stefan needs no introduction. Uh, but for those of you who aren't familiar with Stefan, he is the host of the Stefan Levera podcast. So it's a big it's a podcast about Bitcoin and Austrian economics. It's one of the top podcasts in the space. Um, very, very useful if you're trying to learn more about the why and the how of Bitcoin. So why Bitcoin is important, where it fits into kind of monetary history, the prospects for its future, and also how best to interact with it from a technological perspective, how to buy it, store it, you know, run a node, all those kind of things. And he, he teaches his audience those things through interviewing the people that are directly involved in, in building all of this stuff. Uh, so it's a phenomenal podcast, uh, and it's been hugely instrumental and helpful for me as well. He's also the co-founder of Ministry of Nodes, which is an Australian Bitcoin education company. Um, and so recently he's transitioned, I believe a couple months ago, so I think in May, June 2019, he transitioned to uh, you know, basically this being his full-time job. So he left his previous career, and now he's in Bitcoin full-time. So I just wanted to get on uh, a call with the... Uh, with Stefan and, and have a chat, you know, he, he's spoken to so many cool people and he also is representative of this kind of shift that's just beginning to occur where people are so um, passionate and interested in this phenomenon in Bitcoin that they're finding ways first to engage in it. And so his method has been through education and podcasting and such um, and then trying to, uh, you know, convert their career basically to work full time. And I think uh, probably over the next number of years, we're going to see a lot of people that feel the same way that really want to be involved in this full time, determining what best way to do that is, and then having maybe the financial freedom to, to pursue that once we, uh, once we go through another uh, bull run. But I just wanted to talk to uh, Stefan about all that, uh, what his experience has been like in creating the podcast, interacting with all these people, his role as an educator, um, and a lot more. So this is the uh, further discussion portion. So we take about an hour and 15 minutes and just have a chat. And then, of course, the rapid fire portion is available now as well, where I ask Stefan the standard set of rapid fire questions and then some word associations at the end. That's it. Enjoy. Let's do it. How you doing? Great, great, man. Yeah, just, uh, you know, excited by all the stuff going on in Bitcoin, to be honest. It's crazy, isn't it? Yeah, I mean... What's, ca what's capturing your attention the most? So right now on my mind is how can we make it easy for people to run their own node, right? right? So I'm sort of doing things around that and obviously like with the podcast and stuff, I'm you know thinking on like who can I get on the podcast to talk about some of these topics and stuff. So yeah, th these are things that I'm thinking about right now and um, I... Um, looking at different options in terms of what I can teach because I've got another a, like another business called Ministry of Nodes, right? So yeah. like podcast is my main thing and then Ministry of Nodes is we're doing like an Australian Bitcoin education company. So we're going to we've run like some seminars and things. So yeah, a couple of things around that. What's it like when you do the seminars? Like what's the turn? I know you offer like a one on one thing as well, but is there lots of turnout, lots of interest? You know, what's it like? So we've only just gotten started and I, I'll, to be honest with you, I think a lot of people don't really understand what, the importance of running their own full node yet. So they don't know why it's important. But if you were able to sit down with them and explain, I think a lot of them would get that. Yeah. But so, uh, so far we've had like, you know, a session with kind of like a 
sort of like a high net worth slash wealth advisory sort of uh, team. Um, but otherwise, uh, we've also run a session. We just ran a session recently for basically like just like individual hodlers, right? And so we had a small group and we did like a small classroom thing. So we're thinking about ways that we can uh, try to maybe do web delivery and stuff like that. So we're, yeah, so I guess a few different things around that that I'm, I'm thinking about on how to structure that. Um, and then, yeah, also just thinking about obviously, you know, interviews that I've got on and sure. stuff. So I'm just doing a lot of the, the prep work and the, uh, you know, the admin alongside of that. So things like transcripts and like editing the transcripts and yeah, just, I guess, admin stuff that relates to my podcast. Sure. So. What, what do you say to someone, you know, a noob or, or someone who's just kind of entered the space as the, the primary reasons for the importance of running a full node? You know, because sometimes it's hard enough just to make the, 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 the value prop case for Bitcoin, but to, to kind of make them or inspire them to take the time to actually do that extra work, what, what are the kind of main like reasons that you give for them? Yeah, so uh, great question. And I think that's, that's our fundamental challenge is to explain to people, hey, what you've got, so most people, right, once they get any serious amount, or actually even then, who knows, right? Some people leave it on the exchange, right? But right. the typical scenario, if you're talking people at a Bitcoin meetup, they might just have it on a Trezor or a Ledger, but not run a full node. Mm -hmm. And then, or if they are running a full node, they haven't connected that to their wallet. So then they're not like kind of verifying their own balance, if that makes sense. Yep. So I think... It's a, I think of it like a progression level. So the way I would typically think of it like, and I think this is a progression many people in the space go through themselves so they can relate to it, right? They start by buying Bitcoin, leaving it on the exchange. Then next level is, oh, okay, I should get a hardware wallet, okay? And then the next level is run the node. And the next level is connect that, right? So I think in terms of how I'm kind of teaching people and I sort of keep my finger on the pulse as well because I'm often messaging my friends and I'm often, you know, the guy teaching them, right? So... I typically say get a cold card and get Wasabi wallet to start with. So don't worry about the node to start with, right? Just, you know, stack your Bitcoins on the exchange and then pull it out into a cold card. Now, maybe that's blasphemy. There'll be some people out there who are like, no, no KYC ever. And I can, you know, and again, that's another thing I've been thinking about as well. It's like, how can uh, people stack in a non-KYC fashion? Yeah. Because I think I think of it like we need a gamut. We need a full gamut of options. We need, you know, some there'll be obviously, you know, the KYC exchanges of the world. There'll be and, you know, the BISC and HODL HODL and fast Bitcoins on the other side. Um, but anyway, so I think of it like that. And then I think the next step is trying to convey to people, how do you know that Trezor or Ledger or whoever else is not lying to you? Right. I think that's probably the best way. Um, because sometimes you have to drive that, uh, people have to understand the risks and sometimes you have to spell out what that is and that is how you might be able to get through to them on, hey, actually, I need to take that next step. But I think uh, that, that's, that's the challenge and I think, you know, even looking at myself and how I've, I've improved the way I would uh, teach people about Bitcoin over the years, I think I used to think people should just I sort of expected too much out of people. I would just throw them a bunch of resources and expect them to pick it up and go with it. Now, over time, I'm starting to get more of a sense, like as I teach people, I see where they get stuck, where are the common sticking points. And you have to sort of understand what is the level they are at right, right, you know, yeah. technically and economically and then say, okay, what is the next step? 
for this person. Absolutely. Right? So you might give them, you know, so don't overwhelm them with resources. You'd say, okay, here's one episode or here's one podcast to listen to or here's one article or here's one book. And you start like small and then sort of, you know, work the way up. And obviously some of them, they take it on their own, right? Like some people are very self-starter, right? And sure. so once you give them even just one thing and then like that, that it's about like flipping that switch. And once that switch is flipped, you're just like, like many well, of us, you're you just, in the rabbit you just, hole. Yeah, you're just like, oh, give me every every possible thing I can. I need to like read more. I need to listen to every podcast. I need to like watch all these Andreas YouTubes or yeah. whatever. And it, you know, once you flip that switch, right? So, but it's, but yeah, but part of it that then is once you're a more experienced Bitcoiner yourself, it's becoming a, how do you become a good teacher for the for the next person, right? Because this is, as I often say, this is you know, this is a. There's no one coming to save us, right? It's right. it's us. We have to teach other people how to do this and how to do it the right way. Yeah. And so that's why I take such a strong focus about curation as well and really trying to make sure I sort of guide people down that down the right pathway. And so that for me with my podcast, I really tried to curate hard to make sure uh, they were guests who really would bring a lot of value for my listeners and I would try to, you know, drive the conversation in a way that educates them maximally as much as I can uh, into the pathway of like, what is the ethos of Bitcoin? Why should you run your own full node? Why should you care about these things? Why, you know, et cetera. Yeah, I think you've done an awesome job at that, man. And I think obviously the, the response from the community is often that you kind of, that curation is obvious, that you're intentionally kind of at every sequential level kind of providing people with the information needed to actually integrate or engage with those solutions and and further enhance their Bitcoin mix, whatever that might be, whatever level they're at, you know? So I think, you know, you've done a tremendous job at that. And I, I get the, uh, you know, one of the things I've been thinking about over the last couple of days is when you're deep into Bitcoin, right? Like you get into the conversations about, it's, it becomes very adversarial, right? You, Bitcoin hodlers versus the mm. state. This is what it's, it's always about. And as you mentioned, you know, KYC is one of those ways that the state maintains their, you know, their, their eyes or their grip on you, as it were. And I, and I get that from the adversarial perspective. And it would be ideal if you could be totally uh, anonymous and total, like totally untethered, no eyes on you, no way to kind of impose on you at all. But when we're talking about mass adoption, I mean, like if you bring out, for, like you were saying at the beginning, like Bitcoin is this it's digital gold, blah, 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 Internet money, programmable money. And also, you want to make sure that the state has no idea you're involved in this. It's like, whoa, whoa, like, I'm down for, for sounder money. And I get, you know, that inflation is a hidden tax and all that. But like, I, I don't want to be, a, I'm not trying to be an outlaw or a criminal here, right? Like, I don't want to do something where I have to maintain my anonymity. So, you know, and this comes up a lot when people talk about OPSEC and stuff, too. And obviously, as a public podcaster and a public figure, I mean, you've accepted that people are going to know that you're into Bitcoin, right? But yeah. so many so many people, whether it's anonymous Twitter accounts or, you know, they, 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 they'd rather hide that. And I'm just thinking, like, if this is going to be mainstream, you know, we it's going to have we're, going, we're all going to have to say that, like, we're involved in this in, in some capacity. We can't expect mainstream adoption when we're not even willing ourselves to come out of the closet. You know? Yeah, no, that's a good point. And look, I think ultimately that, like I said, with the, the gamut, right, there'll be some people who... Right. I, part of it was I said, hey, fine, I'll take it on myself. I'll put my name and my face, my real name, my real face out there so that more mainstream people can like see a name and a face to like follow. Uh, 
but I totally appreciate that for some people, if they want to go pseudonym the whole way, you know, they can do that. Um, but yeah, you're right. I think part of it though is I think people don't appreciate the need for their own privacy and their own security until to some extent it's too late, right? right? Like until you've already doxed yourself and now you're like, oh, you know, right? So whereas for me, it was more like, uh, you know what, I'm just, I'm just going to take it on myself because I, I just felt like at the time there wasn't a lot of, it was just the blind leading the blind. There was just too much nonsense out there. So that was part of it for me. Um, but I think to your point, though, about how do you make it mainstream, how do you actually really get there? Look, I think the reality is a lot of people will use KYC on, on ramps to Bitcoin, right? It's not, it's, not, um, uh, it's not controversial to say that, right? I think a lot of people will do so. But I think my hope is that for the people who really, really want to, they can still go and know KYC. And, and crucial to that is having the right infrastructure around that. So, for example, that's having BTC pay server and you can earn Bitcoins and, you know, uh, having other ways to try and uh, buy and sell Bitcoins without necessarily going that route. But not everyone has to go that way, you know. So, And I think that's, that's ultimately the message because, like you said, not everyone is going to be, like, ready to kind of be like, yeah, I'm going to go full crazy anon everything you know super private you know not everyone is at that level i'm certainly not at the level that i could be like super anon private like i you know i'm i'm higher technical competence than the average you know person but i'm not like some uh super you know good computer person so um that's definitely an angle i think it it just comes back to having options right yeah I, I I couldn't agree more. And you mentioned some great initiatives there, like BTC Pay Server and stuff. And actually, when you were saying it, it made me think of, you know, because people are are considerate of KYC considerations because one of the ways in which the states, you know, each individual state could attack this is not necessarily on the protocol level, but on, on the privacy level. So they could say, we know that you purchased Bitcoin on Coinbase and, you know, we want you to burn it, sell it back mm. to us, get rid of it, or else, you know, or else we throw you in a cage or something yeah. like that. And that is definitely a concern, but kind of similar to the, the gun debate that's ongoing these days is that, you know, these technical solutions are kind of going to make regulations almost unenforceable or irrelevant. Like if everybody can print a gun in their own home, how are you actually going to, you know, restrict the enforce, use or control yeah. or enforce th those regulations? So I yeah. guess my hope is that it gets to that extent where it's so dispersed and distributed and it's so easy to engage in that, you know, enforcing laws, right. especially on that scale, would be very, very difficult. Right. One more point I was actually keen to add there. I think the other part about, you know, not KYCing and stuff like some people, and I think it's a fair point that they make, it's that it's not just the government like coming after you for tax and whatever, it's that it's another whole company who know your balance. Right. And if there's a rogue employee at that company, they, they know, oh, John's balance is this many, or if that, or it represents a honeypot, you know, the honeypot argument of, hey, if that company got hacked, their database of customers, and maybe you know, right? And for example, with the block, right? So the block recently, there was that drama about how they had really poor security and they didn't respond well to somebody who came to them with basically, he was like a white hat hacker. He came to them and said, hey, look, I found some problems. You should, you guys should fix that up, right? And uh, I think the block didn't really respond that well on this point. And the other thing there is if somebody were to 
you know, exploit that maliciously, they would then have access to the block's subscription list. And guess what? All these people, they probably have a lot of Bitcoin, right? right? So it's kind of like these are things that companies have to be so, so careful about now because, again, these honeypot, they, they can become like a honeypot, right? And I guess we all face this, right? Because anyone who runs a company, like, it's like, you know, you want to do the best to protect your customers. But there's, there's yeah, I think it, KYC... I mean, obviously, I have big, uh, strong feelings about how bad AML laws are, right? Like, I just think it really, it makes us all worse off. It makes us all so much more, puts us all into so much more danger, especially in this kind of new Bitcoin world where Bitcoin is a bearer asset. And once it's gone, there are no bailouts. So, you know, uh, it, it creates a lot of risk, systemic kind of risk for all of us. Uh, you know, even if you take away the whole kind of government coming after you for taxation angle as well. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, how does like those regulations, are they, you know, because I know Austrian economics is, uh, you know, one of your specialties, area of interest, education. Um, are such things even ever discussed in, in the Austrian sense? Was it was it before that time, like AML, KYC? Is, does that even come up? Well, the AML KYC stuff, I don't think ever came up into some of the mainstream Austrian texts, but there are there is discussion on that. So Per Byland, for example, I think he's got um, some good work on this. Uh, but I think the general point we would make is generally that for the most part, people enter into trades or agreements when they voluntarily agree to do so. What happens, though, is that a government may mandate a certain interaction or mandate a certain way of doing things and that like typically it's like they're kind of just okay there's a lot of different arguments you can make here i think one of the key ones is that fundamentally consumer regulation is better than kind of uh government regulation because oftentimes it's like that idea of the regulator gets captured or the or just it becomes too much of a one-size-fits-all as opposed to where consumers regulate things in that sense where you might have a market rating agency, you might have voluntary agreements between different um, uh, players in the industry about how they're going to do a certain standard, how they're going to do a certain thing. And what I sense and what I see is that oftentimes things start to become better because like the market started to make it better. And then the government just sort of jumps in and then like makes mandates a law about it and then sort of pretends like that was the source of the uh, improved productivity or growth, right? A quick example would be even workplace safety and health laws, right? So over time, right, we, especially with uh, many competing firms competing for your labor, one of the aspects on which they'll compete for that labor is safety, right? So naturally, there's a competition there to make it safer and safer for workers. Yep. But what happens, I think, is that governments will sort of see a certain standard and then mandate that standard for everybody. And it becomes the equivalent of saying, oh, hey, if you can't afford a, you know, a Hyundai car, uh, we want everyone, everyone should have Mercedes level, right? And it's like, well, hang, not everyone can afford that, right? Yeah. So I, 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 do you see the point I'm trying to make there? Is Absolutely, that like people, yeah. yeah. You know, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it, it makes me think of, just the the general uh, behavior of government and expectation 
for government behavior by such a large portion of people today in that, you know, a, a perceived problem arises and then the government is only too happy to pluck out the most basic, simple solution and just shove it on top of that problem. You know, one that comes to mind when you were just discussing that is, um, you know, I saw Bernie Sanders put out a video about um, quote unquote patriotic capitalists talking about uh, increasing the minimum wage, right? And, and it's framed as, as, as in people are suffering. You know, there's a lot of people that don't have enough money. We need to increase the minimum wage and that will fix it. And, you know, you're watching it. I'm watching it in just in disbelief that, that anybody can think the problem is just solved by people don't have enough money. Well, let's give people more money. Problem solved. And it's politically expedient. And the people that are suffering, you know, of course, they're not going to say, yeah, I don't want any more money. But as you, as I know that you know from from your education, like that is obviously a far oversimplified solution. The only way in which I I sympathize with with people that espouse that kind of stuff, and I actually that's the wrong word because I totally don't. I think it's entirely misguided. But at this stage in the system that we have globally of politics and uh, financial system, monetary standard, like. It's not like you could just insert the right decision on one, <clears throat> excuse me, on one level now because it's perverted on both ends by everything below it and everything above it. Do you know what I mean by that? Like it's really hard yeah. to just, you right. know, do what's rational and reasonable in the system now because it's it's predicated on such, you know, uh, it's, it's poorly established. You know, the foundations of it. Right. I see what you're saying. It's. I. I think the way to think of that is, you know, it may be that there are multiple different uh, interventions. And if you merely remove one of them out, it kind of leaves, like, it's still kind of, yeah. But, yeah, ultimately, we, you know, Bitcoin fixes this, man. Like, we're just going to, we're going to, like, we are, we're going to opt out. We're going to build our own parallel financial system. And I think more and more people are getting into that now. Whereas I think years ago, it was more like, oh, just everyone's just gambling and, whatever and people are trading uh, now i think there's really a resurgence in that idea of hey i'm just gonna stack sats i'm just gonna like yeah. do my thing and do the best that we can to sort of opt out right i think it's um i get not not everyone's a libertarian right but um there's this guy um late, the late harry brown rather and he wrote this book about how to live free in an unfree world and it was sort of like that it's it's sort of bitcoin is just like that in some ways that like we're living in an unfree world. What's the best way that we can try to live free in that unfree world? Well, it's by focusing on our on, on these things that we can do. Right. You know, on Bitcoin, learning about you know, for, like at least from the perspective that I, I take is that the more I can try and learn and also teach about Austrian economics and about Bitcoin's technology, the better off we will be in you know five to ten years. Those people who spend time now building a competence in these areas, they will be better placed and better positioned for this coming decade or two, right? Because we are bullish on Bitcoin fundamentally. Like we think this thing is going millions of dollars per coin, right? That would be a low end estimate in my view. Right. So, I think for us, it's about how do you best um, kind of help new people into that system if they want if they would like to join us and then the the rest of us we're just trying to do like i think ultimately people are in a competition to try and stack as many sats as they can right <laughs> um and that's sort yeah. of the 
we're almost in a competition with each other, but at the same time, we sort of, you know, it's like oh, a friendly we competition. We definitely are. Yeah. It's like, yeah, it's friendly competition. You know, like we both, we both have the same goal in mind, but we're, it's not quite, it's not adversarial to the point you want one to win and one to lose. You're just like, you know, let's, let's get after this to the extent that we can and we'll, we'll meet each other in the Citadel. You know, sort yeah, of yeah, we'll see you in the Citadels, right? <laughs> As I say. <laughs> yeah, but I have to say, I know we, we, we keep ourselves in our own bubbles you know there is an entire world that doesn't know anything about this stuff but as you say i mean it does seem it's just so cool that so many people are uh starting to think about these things are are asking questions about what money is and how society should be structured and how economics should work and how you know it's a real revolution because you know you as you said all we can do is focus on, you know, the things that interest us and the things from which we derive meaning and put our energy and resources behind that and try to make something of it. And that's always been the case. But as you said, we're free, you know, trying to be free people living in an unfree world. And I think part, you know, part of the enthusiasm uh, that Bitcoin inspires is that many of us, if we had a good head on our shoulders, we, would, we were doing that 10 years ago, right? Like, okay, the world's kind of fucked up, but I'm going to make the best of it. I'm going to carve out my little, my niche here, focus on my family, friends, the work that I like. But this kind of overarching, like, it's all kind of fucked, isn't it? Like, think cloud would be hanging over it. And I think, you know, I've said this maybe too much now, but Bitcoin is, uh, has brought this illuminating force to that, you know, kind of to, to continue the analogy, like the, the sun parting the clouds, where not only do you, are you relegated to only carving out a niche of happiness for yourself? But now you realize that it could actually, the whole thing could turn into that. And it just inspires you more and more to put more effort and energy behind that. And I'm sure you're inspired by that as well, you know, in in all the things that you do. For sure. It's just incredible. I mean, to me, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I'll tell you what, like, again, not everyone's a libertarian, so not everyone's going to, like, r- resonate with this story. But for me, I was often trying to teach people about libertarianism, right, before before I kind of got into Bitcoin. But I just, I sensed that, okay, yeah, there were a few people I managed to help, you know, sort of bring into the fold in terms of thinking about libertarian ideas. But ultimately, it was a very small number. Yeah. But when I saw Bitcoin and when I properly, like, read about it and understood what it could actually achieve, that was when I got a lot, I... In short, I had a lot more hope, right? I had a lot more hope about what everybody could actually does. achieve, yeah. right? That's what it gave me fundamentally. And I think that's what, that's kind of this message. And even for the people who are not necessarily libertarians, they can, most people, at least if you're in Bitcoin, you appreciate the need for separating money from state, right? Yeah. Like if, whatever your other positions on other things about, you know, gun control and eating meat and you know, <laughs> whatever, right? Like fundamentally the key thing is about separating money from state that's that's really the message and that for me is what i'm mostly driving um in terms of why why do we need to do that how can we best achieve that how can you best secure yourself while you're on this mission or on this journey with everyone else while they say while we're competing with each other but we're also friendly with each other in how to do this sure yeah there's nothing wrong with with competition back to that i mean I, i like to uh I do a lot of tie boxing and, you know, you good mate, you get in the ring, you compete against each other to improve yourselves. Ultimately, that's that's why you're there. And then you shake hands at the end and, and it's all good. But yeah, yeah the, the, the whole behavior change aspect of this phenomenon is is really another phenomenon on top of it. Yes, separating money and state is something that many of us have recognized for a long time would be extremely beneficial for humanity. But just the fact that we're seeing 
you know, people, I just, I actually just did an interview with, uh, with Robert Breedlove and, you know, basically he, he said the same thing in that it's kind of drawing a higher, I hate to use that word, but a, a more, a, a better, higher, more optimal version of ourselves from ourselves. And I don't know if that's because of the hope element or the excitement and the enthusiasm or the sovereignty and independence, probably a collection of them all. But like we're seeing a revolution in, in like behavior change as well as f financial change. Absolutely. So this is like the whole time preference right. point as well, right. right? It's that whole point around how people start to really think more about their future. I personally, I even from a younger age, I was relatively a bit more of a saver type, like I would like to save my money kind of thing. But yeah. I've noticed a lot of other people who necessarily were not like that. And they were a bit more of the consume now type. And they've really changed their behavior. A lot of them have really started to think more deeply about you know, what, what am I earning? What am I spending? How can I, you know, cut my expenses a little bit so that I can save more and then stack more sets, right? And yeah. I think that's a really good behavior. And I think it's not clear to people because people from the outside world, like people who aren't sort of in this world like us, they would look on that and think, what? You Bitcoiners think Bitcoin fixes everything. You no, know, it doesn't <laughs> fix everything. Oh, you're, you're ascribing way too much to this one thing. How can you say that, you know, inflation is so bad and inflation drives all these negative cultural consequences and so on? But from our point of view, no, it really does. It really changes the way, it changes your behavior and it changes the society's behavior as well. Yeah. Because if the government can just bail people out and it can just costlessly print, the, print up the money and the government doesn't have that control that it was it doesn't have that check presented on it that gold used to used to be gold used to check the government size and you know that drifted away obviously because of political vulnerability reasons and centralization of gold and so essentially i mean that all comes back to where we believe and where we have hope that bitcoin changes that game because it just changes the calculus of that violence it just is the game changer yeah and i think I think the fact that Bitcoin fixes this is so applicable to so many things. And like you said, some some people, obviously, they don't see it yet. But I, I mean, I think that's a direct result of the fact that the reality that we experience, the way we engage in the world as a society, as 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 economically communicating individuals, the primary mechanism on which that is built is the money. And so if you improve or change that, that change or improvement is going to, going to be reflected in damn near everything. And so that's, you know, that's where the meme comes from is because it's a recognition of how fundamental the money is to human culture and society. And so if you change it, if you upgrade it, yeah, you're going to, you're going to get a better version of the existing things that you have in society. So, yeah. you know, it does fix this. Yeah. I like the way you framed it there. It's, it's so you can think of it like, you know, upgrade your money, upgrade your society, right? Yeah. Like we're gonna, we're gonna make the world a better place. And I think that may sound a little crazy to people, again, outside of this world, but I really believe it. I really do believe we upgrade our money, we're gonna upgrade our society and we're gonna live in a better world. And that is fundamentally, we're just gonna wi wipe away a lot of that sort of, a lot of that malinvestment and a lot of that waste, uh, a lot of the warfare and welfare state can be washed away and we can, spend that time productively, spend those resources productively. And, you know, we'll have, we'll still have some of these, you know, services done, right? Like we'll have police and courts and so on, but they'll be done in a much more efficient way. They'll be done in a way that's appropriate to that community. And that could, each community will sort of have more control and more say in what happens to them. 
I mean, you look at what's happening in Hong Kong, right? This whole community, literally, the population of Hong Kong is like 7 million, and they had something like 2.5 million turn up to one of the protests, right? And they've got all these people who are protesting because they don't want one country, one system. They wanted one country, two systems. And they were fundamentally sold a lie because the Chinese government doesn't care about them and is now basically kind of heavy-handedly bullying them. And I think it's it's another example. Now, yeah, there was recently that little story of how the local Bitcoin's volume in Hong Kong was shooting up. Now, in fairness, that was not a huge amount, right? right. It's, not a, it's not a globally significant thing or anything, yeah. right? But I think it's 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 foreboding. It's a it's a thing of something to come, yeah. right? We're seeing the tremors already of hey, people are starting to see there's something to this Bitcoin thing, and you know it, we're still tiny today, right? I think the people today are the people who are typically a bit more intelligent, people who are typically have some level of interdisciplinary knowledge, right? They can't just be good at economics. They can't just be good at technology. They sort of have to have a little bit of each, right? And that's being assisted now with resources like the Bitcoin Standard and, you know, the Bitcoin Twitter gang and all the people like writing good articles and so on. And that's helping bring the education. But I still think for now, it's not, uh, it's not something that I, as much as I wish we could make it simpler, it's just right now we're, we're not able to really communicate well uh, with people who aren't like, we're, it's pretty much we're, we're able to speak to people kind of of a higher intelligence and more patience. It's kind of difficult to kind of sell that message right now, but I think it will come around and it'll come around with celebrities coming in and, uh, you know, then people who just follow that celebrity will just do it, right? Like it, this whole Michelle fan thing, I think that's really interesting as well, right? Yeah. You know, I, I, I agree. And because, you know, basically what you're talking about is adoption. You know, when will people start looking at it? When will they see it? And on the one hand, you know, I, I've said this before, and I think other people have said it as well, but like Bitcoin is a wealth transfer to the curious. If you look out on the world and instead of just accepting it, you look and say, why is that that way? Why is that that way? It, this, this could be better. That could be better. Then you're naturally eventually going to fall on it because it's one of the fundamental, you know, things that could be improved. And it's so fundamental to the operation of our lives and society. So if you have that curiosity, you'll get there. And the other thing is, is I mean, look at the, how the space has changed in the, in the course of the last two years. Even if like Twitter is your only metric, look how many more like anonymous accounts and like, you know, gag accounts are there just just being like your your taco pleb on Twitter and engaging in the community like it's happening and it I mean maybe it's not a rush right now maybe it's a, a steady stream but it's it's filling up and then you've as you said you've got you know various celebrities from different uh, you know sections of media and life and sports and stuff that are that are coming in and for a lot of people as we know it's it's gonna be a necessity thing you know they they, they won't really take the time because you know everyone's busy with their own lives they're not going to take the time until they they see a need for it like damn i got to protect my wealth or damn the 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 state is being too overbearing i got to have some of my assets outside of that but i'm you know it brings to mind uh, a quote from the matrix which you know i'm sure we all as bitcoiners love the analogies and metaphors in that movie but it, i think it's in the second one or maybe it's the first one i can't remember but the oracle says you know we're all here to do what we're all here to do, you know, because sometimes I wonder, like, should I be uh, like promoting adoption? Like, first of all, does it have any impact? You know, maybe a tiny bit, but like, should we not just let it happen naturally? And I think the answer is like, well, what do you from what do you derive meaning from? What do you enjoy doing? If you enjoy having these conversations, talking to people, enhancing your own knowledge and information and sharing it with others, 
then go ahead and do it. And, you know, don't have too much expectation on like what your specific impact might be. If it feels right to you and if you enjoy it, then maybe it's the right thing to do. Yeah, right. Yeah, no, I, I, it's a good point you make because fundamentally it's, it is a time factor. It's not necessarily just about having good education and or good so on. UX it's, I think, or whatever. Like, yeah, 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 exactly. Uh, I think it's like on the margin, we can help it, right? Like I think it, it's, it, it's on the whole, it's kind of just going to play out as it play out, plays out. Uh, but on the margin, I think a skillful communicator can kind of influence it in certain directions. And, uh, you know, because I guess there's conflicting ideas in my mind here at this point, because you could say, hey, uh, there's that saying, the best way to predict the future is to create it, right? And so if you want Bitcoin to evolve in a certain way, in a certain ethos that, you know, don't trust verify, like that kind of ethos, then maybe you do need to help push it in that direction and be one of those voices who's out there helping drive it in that direction or otherwise you know maybe your worry is that it'll ends up in a custodial future and right. then bitcoin becomes centralized and who knows um but there's different arguments you can make on that maybe you could say it's a local it's an individual risk those people who trust the institution they're the ones who'll get wrecked right and uh the, the people who do who you know run their own node hold their own keys etc they will be fine. They right. will be untouched by the, you know, the collapses of these fractional reserve banks or whatever, if they were to be. Uh, the other angle, though, is to take a more sort of dispassionate view, right? Um, if you were even, um, like sometimes if you wanted to sort of be a more dispassionate economist looking at the way and you're just trying to understand and explain, right? And you're thinking of it like, hey, this is a phenomenon. I'm trying to understand and explain this phenomenon. I'm not necessarily like out there advocating for it. Um, but I mean, for me personally, I, I sort of more am a little bit more on the advocate side, obviously. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But I, I think that's totally fine to take that position of sort of more dispassionate, sorry, dispassionate uh, assessing what happens and sort of uh, explaining the story of what unfolds or helping to try and clarify that for people uh, to some extent. Yeah. So, yeah. I, yeah. Different I, views there. Yeah. I agree. And different personalities will, will, will go off in those two or, or several directions. And that, that's the way it should be. Right. And those who are attracted to one approach versus another versus another versus another will naturally gravitate towards them. You know, and I've been I've been talking about this a little bit lately. But, you know, so many people are so hopeful about Bitcoin. But there's this like reservation to uh express the full enthusiasm you know because nobody wants to come off as a crazy person coming down from the mountain and you know we all have had those conversations in public that are challenging even if we're you know very deliberate and calm about them but i do think it's important to show enthusiasm you know like i because it's infectious it's a, it's a it doesn't yeah. mean you have to be irrational but you know i don't know i i, I think people respond to emotion far more than they, they do to reason and logic most of the time. And if you can combine those in a, you know, in the right way where you're, you know, you're still logical, you're still reasonable, you're still rational, but you're just letting the people who are, who are observing you feel your enthusiasm for it. Like I'm, I, I, I like that, you know, I think I, I'll probably, uh, in my engagements in the future, be more enthusiastic because it's 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 real you know like a, yeah. it's I, i'm i'm being more conservative intentionally if i'm not showing my enthusiasm right i see what you're saying there totally i think definitely for me 
I think people sense that as well. They sense I've just got this natural <laughs> kind of like I'm just really like I I just I I just have a passion for it, and yeah. I think people that resonates with people, right? Yeah. Um, but to your point about emotions versus logic, that that reminds me of um, this book by Jonathan Haidt. I've forgotten the exact name. I think it, uh, I can't remember the exact name, but the basic concept is like your your brain is like this elephant. It's like the elephant and the rider. And the elephant is the emotional part of your brain, and then the rider is like the rational part of your brain. And then yeah. what happens in practice is that your elephant is really what's making decisions on things, and then your rider is kind of post uh, post facto justifying wh- what decision got made. Yeah. So you're right in the sense that people are more, we are more emotionally swayed and actually much more emotionally swayed than we would like to admit. We'd like to think that we're very rational and logical about how we think about things, but actually that's not really the case. Yeah, right? it's, it's funny you bring that up. Uh, when I did a podcast with American Hoddle, he used that exact example too, right? How there was some testing done where like the, the, the response was recorded prior to like the, the stated or, or logical response. And it just, just that, we have the emotional response and then our, our conscious mind justifies what, whatever that response was, right? And we think we made like a rational, logical decision, but most often we're probably swayed by emotions. Um, you mentioned uh, libertarian, right? So you, you, I think you call yourself a libertarian. And I had a conversation lengthy with um, Eric Voskill a couple of days ago, and he's a, an anarchist. And I, I, and I asked him what the distinction was, and he basically said, well, libertarianism, for you know, all its divergences from other political philosophies, still believes in a state versus anarchy, which... Which, oh. which does I, I different definition. Yeah, go on, go on. Yeah, no, I was just going to ask you to if you could elaborate on kind of what your definition of libertarianism is. So yeah, I am. I would classify myself classify myself as an anarcho-capitalist libertarian. For me, libertarianism is a like a overarching philosophy, and then there are kind of uh, you know, um, what's the best way to say it like subcategories within that, right? So within libertarianism, you've got a gamut. Again, so you've got some from the anarcho-capitalist area who are who believe in no state, and then you've got some who are minarchist, right? And so from my point of view, I just think of all of that is libertarianism, and then not every libertarian is an anarcho-capitalist. So that's how I would uh, frame that particular point. And so within the, I guess, broad church of libertarianism, if you will, there are the range would be basically people you know, to the right of uh, people who are only just slightly to the right of, say, the, the Republicans, right? And then you've got, like, the people who just want the smallest possible state, right? So I think a, a good example I've mentioned on a podcast before is uh, Francis Pouliot, right? So he's a minarchist. He believes in the idea of, uh, typically, the minarchist state is uh, courts, police, and national defense. And that's it. Nothing else uh, done by the government. Uh, whereas the anarcho-capitalist is more like, literally everything done by the free market, you know, courts and everything. Now, to the point of, you know, do you, you know, do you go and debate each other and say, no, we should have no state versus we should have a small state? Like, for me, I don't bother getting into that argument, really. Like, for me, yeah, like, while I think zero government and, you know, fully private governance would be best, I don't know if it'll ever happen in my lifetime, and I don't know if it's ever worth, if it's really worth fighting about it, right? Because we've got bigger fish to fry, right? Like, like that's why I don't really, yeah, debate that so strongly myself. Although in years gone by, there were a lot of uh, libertarian debates and kind of infighting around those sorts of points, right? So 
you know, some people would like be hating on Ron Paul because he wasn't <laughs> putting out a fully, perfectly anarcho-capitalist position. Um, but you know, I think there's there's only so much you can do if you're trying to run for president, right? Sure, so, sure. So yeah, you yeah. Got, especially in that context, you've got to make trade-offs if you're going to be you know viable at all. But um, yeah, I mean, I I just think that the money dictates you know, the type of, of social organization we get, you know, and, and if you use a money with a lot of detrimental attributes, then you'll have to erect structures around that that will ultimately represent, you know, a, a concentration of power, and that will be co-opted over time. Versus if you use a money that has far fewer uh, detrimental attributes, then you won't need as many structures layered on top of it to coordinate social function, and there, there won't be as many opportun opportunities to to uh, co-opt co power, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty simple. Like I, I don't get too, for me, I don't get too bogged down in like these philosophical uh, conceptual ideas of what the state should or shouldn't be is the money you use will dictate the state if you allow it and it will be predicated on the attributes or lack thereof of the money. And again, that's why I'm hugely interested in Bitcoin is because, you know, gold was, was great, but it had a number of of uh, detrimental attributes, and as a result, we still had to erect structures over top of it to make it usable. Bitcoin has far fewer. Now, I'm not saying it's perfect, and its imperfections will probably become more to light as, as time goes on, and, and our kind of uh, you know, rampant enthusiasm becomes a little bit more reserved. But man, you know, I, I think it, uh, if we could get that money in use by the world, then Whatever, whatever government structure emerges around that, which probably we don't even have a name for it at, the, at this time, would be the best that we, we could hope for. Yeah, uh, no, I think that's right. I think I'll, fundamentally, as much as I might want an anarcho-capitalist society, I don't know if it'll happen in my lifetime. Uh, the likely outcome, in my view, is city-states, right? We're going to yeah. see a world with, you know, Singapore, like thousands and thousands of, you know, Singapore's and Hong Kong's and Liechtenstein's and places like Switzerland. And I think on net, that'll be much better. That'll be a lot better than what we have today. So, yeah. well, that'd be cool. They, let's then take it. I'll take they, that, right? They'd be competing for, for us to live there, right? And they'd, presumably exactly. they'd be competing on services and that, that everybody benefits from that. Um, exactly. What, uh, what I was going to ask, though, kind of related to that is, I don't know how much of a history buff you are, but are there any examples of like what what would be the example of the most libertarian or anarcho-capitalist state in history? Do you know much about that? There's a okay, so there's a couple of pieces on this. I think there's one by a libertarian named Roderick Long. So he's written a little bit about this idea of like I think it was in like Iceland and. I'm not as up on these examples, where, sure, sure. whereas years ago I knew them off, off the top of my head. But that's one example where there were chieftains. And the idea was that you could be living in a certain area but have different chieftains. And your chieftain sort of was your uh, kind of like your legal, almost like a legal representative or pr protector as well. And you kind of voluntarily paid for services. But it wasn't like, you know, gov whereas government, we think of that as a territorial monopolist and ultimate uh, uh, authority of the land, right, in terms of law and taxation, right? Whereas this idea was more like you could be here and choose different chieftains and stuff. And so that was somewhat like that idea. And there's there are other examples as well. So books on this, uh, there's one called Private Governance by Edward Stringham, and they talk about some different examples uh, of, uh, you know, uh, 
Yeah, so I mean, there's a few different examples. So there's uh, Private Governance by Edward Stringham. There's this one called, I think it's called Anarchy and the Law by um, Peter Leeson. There's another one called The Enterprise of Law by Bruce Benson. So there's a bunch of these ideas, and they'll talk about some of these systems that even like gangs had, and some of these like the law amongst pirates, and like how there were certain rules of the game, right? And they, they would still act by that code, um, and even though they were pirates, right? Which you would think like, oh, they would just like, you know, kill and rape and do whatever, right? But really, that wasn't actually how it happened. Now, in terms of more modern day examples, yeah, like, we don't have a perfect anarcho-capitalism idea, right? So we typically just look at, well, what are the places that are more capitalist, right? So, you know, the places like Hong Kong, when it's not being uh, taken over by China, is a good example. Switzerland is a good example. Liechtenstein is a good example. Um, so those are some of the good examples. But it's, it would be a fair criticism for people to say, hey, that's never existed before. But I think ultimately for us, it, it, it comes back to also like what is the right moral uh, foundation, right? And so the libertarian sort of the libertarian way of uh, framing that question is typically it's immoral to initiate aggression against somebody to basically steal their stuff or steal their property or against their person. And so if you really truly respect that, then you want to try and think about what society should look like and part of that is why we believe taxation is not right because it wouldn't be right if it was done by a random individual right like if i just took it on myself to go down the street and like go gun to the head to everyone and say hey pay me because i'm doing police services for all of you they would say hang on stefan we didn't we didn't ask you to do this why are you doing this why why do you think you why who gives you the right right and so i think fundamentally we would say it's that the fact that you know, people vote on it doesn't really make it right, right? Just because, you know, two wolves and a sheep vote on who's for lunch doesn't, you know, right? That's the saying goes. Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, that's very, like, kind of specifically around libertarian political philosophy and theory. I, you know, obviously I am a libertarian, but I, I don't necessarily bring that up on my own podcast, so to speak. I sort of focus on the economics and the technology components of it, but I guess in the back of my mind, it is there in terms of how I'm thinking about things and to some extent, I think that's why when you um, look at guys like Trace Mayer and stuff, like he, who's like super early, I think he, one of his focuses, if anything, when he was sort of in the earlier days, was who, which communities would be best placed to hold Bitcoin early. And I think he wanted more other libertarian types to be early Bitcoiners so that they could be help, like help form the rest of the new society into under a more... Uh, under a way that was more amenable to a private property ethic, to this idea of, hey, we're going to live under a society with actual free market laws, not just like the government makes up the law and the government uh, chooses winners and does regulation and does all these government programs. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I understand and agree with, with what you said. And, uh, you know, like, like I said, I just think m money is what dictates our behavior and improve the money, improve the behavior, and the proper way to organize around that will naturally coalesce. So I think, you yep. know, which is to say, we're probably doing the right thing and focusing on the money now and not so much getting stuck in the quagmire of philosophical or, or political uh, debates, you know, just saying, exactly. we need to fix, you know, we need to focus all of our energy because we know how primary this thing is and we'll encounter the rest of it once we, once we cross a few more hurdles. Um, yeah. What's it been like for you, man? I know that, um, you know, you've been doing the podcast a little over a year now. I think you, I heard you say you stepped away from other work in May or June of, of this year, right? 
Yeah, yeah. So I quit my normal job uh, start of would have been start of June, start of June ish. So, so yeah, so we're talking three four months now, um, or maybe a little bit more. But what's yeah, it been so like? basically, yeah, I mean it's so totally different. I mean it, I'm Liber- basically liberating. I'm sure. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, that was the first part. Um, and I mean, for me, I'm just sort of thinking about ways that I can really scale this and really, uh, really make it sustainable, right? So now, you know, I'm getting like advertisers on the podcast, and I'm you know building this other business as well, which is about Bitcoin education. Um, so yeah, but it's definitely much more liberating in the sense that I set my own hours, right? And it's um, it's like that saying. I'd rather work 12 hours a day for myself than eight hours a day for someone else. Right. So that sort of thing. Um, so to some extent, that has come into my mind as well. That I spend, I probably spend more time working, but I'm doing stuff I'm passionate about, and you know, so that for me is just amazing. Well, you so, just get to access yeah. that wellspring of additional energy, right? Like I think everybody can relate to the fact that if you're walking into a job that even if you only partially dislike. Then it's a, you know it's kind of a you come home at the end of the day and you're tired you don't have much excess energy but like you just said you know maybe you do 12 14 hour days at this but because of what it represents and because in, you're in in control and because of the way you feel about it you probably you know you probably don't you probably like doing it actually you're probably you know pretty excited to get going every day yeah yeah exactly I think it's like that thing of how we feel like we need a purpose right and we need something right. that we're working on and for me yeah I guess Bitcoin advocacy Bitcoin education has become a bit of a purpose of mine and so I'm very happy to spend time doing that and uh, it just ultimately is about how uh, fulfilling and you know rewarding it is and I get a big sense of reward out of uh, doing the stuff I'm doing so um, yeah I absolutely very you know I I thank my lucky stars that I got into a position that um, you know I can do this now so uh, yeah, I'm just very lucky. Well, you're doing the Lord's work for sure. But uh, <laughs> what, like, you? I think you partially answered this, but is your kind of idea of what your plans are for the next couple of years just more of this? You know, I'm sure it'll evolve and change as you think up of innovative ideas about how to actually execute it. But for you, it's just more, more, more in terms of execution and outreach and, or sorry, education, outreach, that kind of stuff. Ultimately, yes. I think I want to look at how I can make things better and ultimately just craft better and better educational stuff for people on Bitcoin, obviously. So uh, I think the podcast, I mean, I just put out just a ton of material out there. Uh, I'm thinking of ways that I can structure it. I mean, you might have noticed I've done some series recently. So I had like a BTC pay server series, a hardware world series, Bitcoin custody series. So I've tried a few different... Yeah, I've tried a few things like that to try and give people almost like a little curriculum, right? It's like, hey, you want to learn about this thing? Here's the series. Just just, um, just binge through that series and you're good. Um, so I've tried to think about little things like that as well as what are some other things I could do around maybe writing articles. And I mean, I've got a, in the back of my mind, I'm like, oh, I should write a book, hey? So I'm thinking about that as well. Um, but, but what would, yeah, the, I mean, what look, would I've, the book yeah. be about out of curiosity? Well, I haven't thought too much about it yet. So I've got a few different ideas, right? It might be something related to Austrian economics. It might be something like, you know, kind of uh, something related to how, you know, Bitcoin is like our, is a way of us getting freedom, right? And it's a, it's a way of us uh, kind of contributing in some sense to this 
you know, Bitcoin nation, if you will, around the world, right? Like I'm, I'm here in Sydney and there's people all over the world. In fact, only probably 5% of my listeners are in Australia, right? right? Which is funny when you think about it, right? I'm, I'm an Australian podcaster, but 95% of my audience is <laughs> overseas. Yeah, it's so, awesome. Yeah. And so, um, but yeah. Uh, go ahead. Oh, no, that's, that, yeah, go on. Yo, I was just going to say, what made you decide to, you know, fire up a podcast in the first place? And not only decide, yeah. but allow yourself the, the latitude to say, like, people would give a fuck about what I have to say about anything, you know, because that can be a stumbling <laughs> block for a lot of people. Yeah, that's right. Um, for me, I, it was frustration, right? I was getting frustrated with the quality of the, not everything, but there, was, there, were, there were very few really high quality resources out there at the time that I started, right? Because I just felt like it was the blind leading the blind, right? So a lot of these podcasters were just getting on random, you know, shitcoiners and blockchainers, and it just wasn't what I wanted, right? And to some extent, and this is sort of similar to open source as well, people scratch their own itch, right? So to some extent, when I'm doing podcasts, I'm, I'm crafting it in such a way that I, if I was a listener and I wasn't a podcaster myself, what would I want to listen to? Well, that to some extent, that's um, one thing I'm doing in terms of how I structure and how I think about, okay, who, what's, who would be a good guest? What would be some good topics? How should I run this interview? That's kind of one thing. Um, and also, just I just fundamentally thought people are thinking about it the wrong way. And I think now we've got a, a swing back, uh, you know, the pendulum sort of swinging back in terms of people coming from more what I call Bitcoin Austrian view, right? So, you know, some of my friends like Safedean and Pierre Richard, Michael Goldstein, VJ, some of these guys like, um, you know, Marty Bent, Matt O'Dell, like we're sort of pushing it back to being more about actually about Bitcoin and Austrian economics. And so that for me was, yeah, what can I do to help people see it in a clearer light? And I, I think I've, you know, been uh, to some extent, I've got lucky, right? Like part of it was just right place, right time. Um, you know, I, I think I was just doing something that other people weren't doing at the time. Did you so, think it would turn into a career opportunity or were you just like, I, I need, I feel like doing this, so I'm going to do it? Yeah, I think it was definitely, I just wanted to do it, right? I just thought, it was for me, it was like, I'm throwing caution to the wind, I'm just going to do it. I, it was just a passion, you know? For me, now it is my full-time job, but back then, it was, I, I spent a lot of time, right? I basically spent almost all my time outside of work, working on episodes and like hustling to get guests on and hustling to you know go and research and make sure that the episode was really tight in terms of uh, good questions to ask and good topics to cover so that it would be a very good pathway for a new person coming in because I think part of it was I've been around Bitcoin for a while like I've been invested I mean I've been into Bitcoin and so I had a bit of a leg up in how I could curate things. I sort of knew who were good people to ask and I knew good pathways to ask questions around. So, you know, I don't really think of myself as some big expert. I just sort of know how to ask questions of the experts in and to do it in such a way that I get answers that will be very educational for the listener. Yeah. Yeah, I, I look at it a very similar way. Like if, if, if we all just kind of scratch our own curiosity and try to educate ourselves and ask the questions that we want answer to, answers to, there's a big chance that the people listening have similar questions, right? And this is also part of this just accepting who you are and where you're at. Like your style of delivery and the questions you ask 
may not be of interest to someone a higher rung above or a rung below. But for the people that are on a similar rung, it's probably going to resonate. And so that's the kind of the faith of, of, of putting yourself out into the public sphere, whatever you're talking about. It's like, mm. I'm just going to kind of speak my truth and try to satisfy my own curiosity. And if anybody wants to tune in, that's, that's cool. And it must be really gratifying to know that a lot of people do tune in and they value your work and they praise your work often on Twitter and stuff like that. I mean, it's aside from just the opportunity to engage in the work. I mean, the, the cherry on the top just must be the, you know, the people that actually appreciate it. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I think, yeah. Be, yeah. I really appreciate when I see uh, a lot of people like retweeting and sharing my episodes around and things like that, because yeah, I guess um, I, I'm starting to see a lot of people who picked up a lot of their understanding just from listening through through my catalog, and I think that really, um, I guess it's it just it, it just it's gratifying to know people really like your work. So do, do you I guess th- that's that's for anything. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think about that when like you're speaking into the mic, or do you have a dissonance? Like, do you just does it not register that you know ten thousand, hundred thousand, whatever it is, people are actually listening to your voice and the conversation you're having? <laughs> <laughs> that was a funny thing for me to get my head around, right? For a long time, I never really got my head around that. And part of it also was uh, before I had flown overseas recently, I I had not met many of my <laughs> listeners. So for me, I'm just like, oh, I just record this episode and it just goes off into the ether and just thousands of people out there are listening. Right? <laughs> it didn't sort of click in my head that now, you know, I mean, obviously at some level I understood that. But yeah, like, yeah. at some level, you're sort of like... Oh, how weird is that? Like, I literally sit down and I I have a conversation with somebody, and then later, you know, six thousand people or, or more will listen to that episode. And yeah. So it's it's sort of funny. Now I'm getting a bit more used to that. And um, you know, when I when you go to a Bitcoin conference and you know people just know you right because they've heard you. Um, that's something I'm I'm slowly getting used to it. Right. Yeah. yeah. That must be cool, man. <laughs> to to. Uh you know, to show up at a place, everybody's strangers, but you somehow know each other, whether it's from Twitter, whether it's from listening to podcasts, and, and you know there's a lot of similarities, and it just must be like, hey, man, like, awesome to see you. Like, I feel like yeah. feel like we're friends. Yeah, yeah, and it's because it's so early, right? Right. Imagine five, ten years from now, it won't be like that. Yeah. Know? But part of that is that, that's why this is such a golden time, right? Like, and part of that is maybe we're getting a little more philosophical, but it's like you got to enjoy this moment, like, because... You never know when it's gone and um, this thing will get big and this kind of community feel that exists now, it may not exist then. 100%. So yeah, enjoy and, it while it lasts. And, and like people, are, people, there's not many podcasts that just broadly discuss the internet at this point, right? There's like IoT podcasts and, you know, whatever. But like most people aren't asking that many burning questions about the internet generally. And so, you know, this this community and the communication that's happening now will of course morph and change. So I, I agree, man. I think that's the right approach. Just, uh, yeah, it, it, appreciate it and enjoy it for what it is right now. Um, do you have time to, to do some rapid fire questions? Yeah, sure. Let's do it. Cool. Last question before that though, about the kind of, uh, the, uh, state of affairs right now, you've been a bit vocal lately about crypto podcasters and and, and, <laughs> and people in the space that uh, I guess as far as you're concerned maybe lead people in uh, in uh, not so helpful directions what what's what's what kind of draws your ire for the people in the space that are 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 doing that or what is your perception of what they're doing and the negative effects so look we live in an attention economy and some people get too addicted to that right the likes the retweets the followers whatever right and 
their influence or whatever, right? Whatever, whatever you want to call it. And my view on this is we need strong curation, right? And I guess that's quite clear because like the way I sort of run my podcast and the way I do things, that's quite clear. It annoys me when people do these sort of attention-seeking, self-aggrandizing moves because it's just BS, right? Like this Ripple guy is just not good for the industry, right? People think this is like a crypto industry, but it's not. It's a Bitcoin industry and the other things are like hangers-on. It's Bitcoin and people who are riding the coattails of Bitcoin. And, you know, it frustrates me because to me, it, it my sense of it is it's like being an engagement parasite. It's like, oh, I'm going to take all the benefit of like sucking up all this engagement because it, it's sort of sucking all the air out of the room and pointing it all your way. And then what does it do? It means other people have to now spend their time and effort. And you know that saying, right? It takes an order of magnitude more effort to refute bullshit than to just spout it, right? Than to just say it. And so... If, if this guy ends up just wasting, like putting up all this, like, you know, because you think about it this way, who profits from calling it crypto, right? People, certain, there's people who profit by calling it that rather than, in my view, viewing it more like this is a Bitcoin industry, not a crypto industry. But I could be wrong. Maybe that maybe there's um, other people out there who really, you know, think that there, there's something to that. Um, I just, you know, and there are other views out there, right? So some people might say, okay, fine have Brad Garlinghouse on, but you need to get someone, you either need to be super well researched yourself or you need to like have another guest host on there who's going to like really hammer them hard on the, you know, on the questions that need to be asked. So in my view, it just ends up being a bit of a time waster, right? Because some people are like, oh yeah, I would love to listen to Brad Garlinghouse on Pomp's podcast or whatever, right? Ultimately for me, I think that's just, it's just a massive waste of time. I don't care about listening to some shitcoin CEO. Why, why is that... Uh, valuable to me. I've, I'm going to spend time listening to, you know, some Austrian economist uh, lecture, or I'm going to listen to, you know, some Lightning Network lecture or Bitcoin and improve my knowledge about that. And fundamentally, look, if they want to do what they want to do, but then that means I'm not, I'm going to be more skeptical about the way Pomp acts in future. Because if he's going to be this sort of, um, like a weather vane and just kind of go where, where, the, where the attention goes. Well, then is he really going to have the cojones? Is he really going to have like the kind of the ticker to really stay with it in the times when it's not so good for Bitcoin, right? Yeah. I, I just, I, that's, that's my view on it. I think it just becomes a bit of an engagement parasite practice. And I, I don't think it's very productive for everyone else because w people are going to have to spend a lot of time like refuting that when they could have spent more time, you know, doing productive things. Yeah, I, I know what you're saying entirely. And I, I guess I oscillate between, you know, thinking about it in two ways. And ultimately, I don't, I don't take action on either way of thinking. So I guess I'm somewhere frozen in the middle. But, you know, on the one hand, I think I hate to see uh, people promoting things that uh, will ultimately possibly potentially hurt people financially or whatever, you know, and like to use another example, you know, Roger Ver's antics, you know, with Bitcoin.com and the way he's directed people, you know, uh, the manner in which he's directed people to Bitcoin cash and stuff like that. I just think like, man, how many people have been burned by, you know, just being confused by all that or being misdirected. And so I, I think like that's kind of a bad actor sort of behavior. Mm. On the flip side of that, and potentially in a more libertarian vein, I think the market will 
will settle all this, you know? So yeah, sure. The market oh, will... Ultimately, ultimately, it will. Yeah. yeah, I agree with you there. Like, But I think from my point of view, it's more like I'm saying individuals are part of that market. Right. And for me, right. saying speaking out against what I view as kind of sketchy or, you know, behavior that basically supports a scammer or a shitcoiner is not really a good practice. And I'm not going to retweet Pomp and I'm not going to like try and boost him up on this because I think he's fundamentally going the wrong direction. He's doing it in a way that builds himself at the expense of other people. And I don't like that. I think that's not a productive and uh, constructive way to go about these things. So that's why, you know, you, you might have seen some of my recent comments on Twitter and whatever. But Look, ultimately, I, I've, I've stopped sort of commenting heavily on that. Like, obviously, I mean, I'm commenting now because you asked me, but yeah, yeah. I I just think, I, I just treat that now as that's irrelevant. I'm not going to follow that. I'm not going to get into that. I'm just going to spend my time doing what I think is highest value. And totally. I think the highest value stuff is, you know, the Bitcoin and Austrian economics education. Yeah. And I and again, back to the, the market settling all this is that, you know, people will be aware that you spoke out against something, whatever it is, and that other people supported things. And over time, the market will, will dictate, you know, who was right, who was wrong, and who accrues the value for having been right or wrong. Or, or right. lose, the credibility, the, the reputation. Yeah. 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 Um, but I did like the idea. I think Matt O'Dell suggested it where he would go on, he would be a part of the uh, interview and it would be live streamed. Like I, I, w I would, I may look into live streaming all my stuff just because I like the idea of it being raw, real, unedited. And, you know, if there's a slip up, there's a slip up. If there's not, there's not. But I, you know, I think that's it's, it's a more truthful way of communicating, I think. Yeah, no, live is cool. It's just there's a little bit more logistical around it. Sure. And especially when you're remote, it can be difficult if there's like technical difficulties and it's live and then everyone's like, oh, where's the guest? Da, da, da. Like, so. Yeah, but I mean, definitely it can be a good thing. So yeah. got to look into it. What's up, guys? That is the end of the further discussion portion of my conversation with Stefan. If you want to hear the rapid fire section, or the rapid fire portion, rather, that's available now as well. So you can just head on over and download that if you want to hear more from Stefan. Later.